For the last five months, the country has understandably been focused on the health and economic consequences of the COVID pandemic. It's already having a huge effect on the economy, on employment, on the public finances. All the while, though, the government's been preparing for the reality of Brexit. Not the formal Brexit that happened back in January, but the new trading relationship that will come into force at the end of the year. That too, whatever the final deal, will cause deep and fundamental changes to our economy, to jobs, to earnings and incomes. So here with me for this edition of the IFS Zooms In to discuss the possible effects of Brexit and how it might interrelate with the COVID pandemic is my colleague Peter Lavelle. He's been working on the trade and employment effects of Brexit since just after the 2016 referendum, kindly funded by the ESRC UK and the Changing Europe programme. So to kick off, Peter, first, perhaps it's worth starting by reminding us where we are with the Brexit process and those trade talks. Well, as you said uh, in your introduction, uh, Brexit got done in the sense that Britain ceased to be a formal member of the of the European Union on the 31st of January. Uh, and that now means we are in uh, the transition period uh, of the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson signed with the European Union last year, which means that there's still similar trade agreements to what we had when we were in the European Union. Some agreements have been made on the financial settlement, on what's going to happen to Northern Ireland, on citizens' rights. But what hasn't been decided yet is the form of the future trade agreement or what's going to happen at the end of the transition period, which uh, ends on the 31st of December, which is going to be the future trading relationship with the European Union. So what the trade barriers are going to be, uh, what regulations are going to govern um, trade between uh, the UK and the EU and questions of that nature. And that's what's being uh, negotiated or is being negotiated at the moment. Exactly. Uh, and uh, a key milestone we passed was was in July, where there was the option was built in to extend the trade talks in the event uh, it was felt it was needed more time to complete the negotiations. Uh, and that deadline was the 1st of July, and that's now passed. So it looks like unless some ingenious legal solution can be found, we have to reach an agreement with the EU on what the future terms of the trade agreement are going to be by the end of this year. And what are the key issues that uh, are being looked at in that in, in that trade agreement? I mean, can we can we expect everything to be nailed down by uh, the beginning of next year, or will we be nailing down a few broad things at the moment, and then lots and lots of detail to sort out later? Well, a lot remains unknown, so we'll have to see we'll have to see whether we strike any kind of agreement at all, or. Uh, if we don't strike an agreement, we'll default to WTO rules. And, and what does WTO rules uh, mean in this in, in this circumstance? So under uh, WTO rules, uh, we would have to treat uh, imports from the EU in the same way we treat imports from countries with which we don't have formal trading agreements, and the EU would have to do the same to us. So if we apply tariffs to countries with which we don't have free trade agreements, we would have to apply those same tariffs uh, to our trade uh, with the EU. And in practice, that would mean large increases in tariffs on the exports uh, the UK makes to the EU. And more directly under the UK government's control, we will have to start charging tariffs um, at a certain level on the goods we import from the European Union. People often talk about tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers. A lot of the discussion in the press is about these tariffs whereby you have to pay effectively a tax on uh, anything you um, import or a tax gets paid on our exports, and that clearly makes trade more expensive. 
Uh, but these non-tariff barriers are actually more important for most things, aren't they? Yes. So for the majority of industries, it's the non-tariff barriers that are going to matter more uh, in terms of their trade, either when it comes to importing goods or exporting goods. So those encompass everything that makes trade more costly for, for businesses that isn't, a, as you say, a formal tax or tariff. So it could include uh, the costs of custom checks and the cost of custom delays, which might mean firms have to hold additional inventories, for example. Uh, it could be um, what we call behind-the-border regulations. So, for example, the UK and the EU might diverge in product labelling and then firms would have to produce two sets of products, one's fit for a sale in the EU, one fit for sale in the UK, and that would introduce additional costs. Or it could just be that um, um, some goods cannot or services cannot be sold in a different market without getting uh, separate approval first. So all those costs add up and they feed into what we call the non-tariff barriers associated with trade. Uh, and is it fair to say that uh, you know across the uh, across the world the, the the single market and customs union we've had in the European Union uh, for the last uh, several decades has been more effective at getting rid of those non-tariff barriers than pretty much any other uh, trade agreement? Yes, that's that's fair to say. So um, it's if you look at uh, different trade agreements in terms of the number of provisions they have the number of different areas they cover. The EU single market is the world's deepest trading agreement. Uh, and that's because, so within the European community, tariffs were actually eliminated uh, between members quite early on. And of a lot of the efforts since then have been focused on achieving mutual recognition of different product standards in different countries or harmonizing regulations agreeing common sets of standards that means that goods and service providers can sell their uh, output across the EU. And that's one of the reasons, presumably, that uh, such a very large fraction of our trade is with the European Union. Just take us through briefly what fraction of our imports and exports uh, we do with the European Union. So in terms of our imports, around half of our imports come from the EU, In terms of our exports, it's a bit less than that. About 45% of our exports go to the EU. Um, And that makes it by far the UK's largest uh, single trading partner. And that's uh, that's a really important arithmetic point, isn't it? Because such a large fraction of our trade is with the EU. Even a small change in that would require very big changes in the amount of trade that we do with other countries in order to make up for it. Exactly. So if, uh, I mean, you can always do the exercise, you imagine, you know, how much more we need to trade with another market, for example, the United States, or with China, uh, to make up for a 1% reduction in our uh, trade with the EU. And there you can see, you know, both the USA and China, the EU is multiples of the importance of, uh, as a trading partner relative to those other countries. And that's uh, you know, and there are lots of ways of looking at it, but I think that's one of the key, key lessons in interpreting the sorts of things government says that you know they might have a new free trade agreement with New Zealand, or they might talk about you know, increasing trade with China, but uh, you'd have to have huge effects to uh, offset just small changes in the amount of trade we have with the European. Union. Can you tell us, you, you've been doing work, Peter, about the um, potential impacts of um, trade barriers with the EU on different kinds um, of industry, given what we know about uh, the cross, amounts of cross-border 
trade and um, how important that is for those different industries. Can you just take us through which are the industries in the UK likely to be most uh, negatively affected by um, increased uh, barriers and, and, and which might be less so? So the simplest way to answer that question is to look at uh, different industries and look at the amount uh, those industries export currently to the European Union uh, and how much uh, of those exports are going to be affected by tariffs or the value of tariffs or other trade barriers uh, that firms are going to have to pay following, for example, a no deal uh, Brexit scenario. Uh, but also to look at the amount those different industries import from the European Union uh, in terms of inputs. So that could be uh, inputs of goods, so um, machinery that you assemble into into, into other products, or um, in terms of services, so back office functions or other things that might be outsourced to firms in the EU. Uh, And when you look at that, there's um, certain industries that uh, uh, stand out as being more affected by uh, uh, potential new trade barriers with the EU than others. So, for example, clothing and textiles, the, the formal tariffs actually on clothing and textile imports to the EU are quite high, so that would be quite seriously affected in a, in a no-deal outcome. But also other manufacturing indices, so chemicals and transport equipment, food and drink, and, and many of the other industries you hear about uh, in the news, especially when Brexit comes up. What do we know about services, though? Because obviously the UK is a predominantly services um, uh, economy. And I think one of the puzzles here is uh, that that a lot of the work uh, on trade is done on goods. But in a sense, it's that deep um, single market that's been so important to um, services trade across borders. That's right. So services make up the majority of the share of the UK economy, as you said, about 80% of of the UK economy. In terms of exports, they're uh, less important. Uh, So uh, they account for just under half of the UK's exports are are services. Um, Services trade um, is going to be particularly affected by these non-tariff barriers uh, we talked about. The trade barriers potentially affecting most services industries Um, look at first glance to be lower than we'd expect for other manufacturing industries, partly because they don't have these formal uh, 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 trade barriers and tariffs that go on top of non-tariff barriers for other industries. Um, But the key issue with services is that uh, uh, they employ many more people than manufacturing does, and uh, their employment of people is much more dispersed across the country. So one of the reasons you might uh, worry about manufacturing, even though it's a very small share of uh, UK employment, under 10% of uh, employment is is manufacturing, uh, is because those industries uh, tend to export much greater share of their output, especially to the EU, tend to get a much greater share of their inputs from the EU, and they tend to be concentrated in particular parts of the country, in particular parts of Midlands and uh, the northeast of England, for example. Um, and that means that those industries are more likely to get a concentrated hit from, from new trade barriers. And the workers in those industries are going to have fewer alternative sources of employment in their local area uh, in the event that they lose their job. And this is one of the, the, the lessons of um, trade policy over the last decades, isn't it? That uh, you you can have 
quite big negative effects on quite um, concentrated groups of workers. So, for example, uh, when China entered the, um, the international trading system, uh, some particular groups of manufacturing workers in Western countries, including the UK and the US, lost their jobs, and um, uh, and that had very focused effects on the local economies that they were working in. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so if you look at the regions in, for example, the United States that were more focused on industries that were directly competing with, with, with China when Chinese imports started to increase rapidly in the 2000s, on a range of different measures, uh, those regions performed less well than other places in terms of employment, in terms of earnings, in terms of health, in terms of social outcomes such as marriage and, and crime rates. And that's uh, something that's been particularly shown in, in, in the literature covering the United States. Uh, but that's also been shown to be the case in other European countries. Um, studies have looked at Spain and, and, uh, and the UK and Germany and France and have, have come to similar conclusions. So it looks like when there's a surge in imports affecting these particular industries, we do see quite persistent impacts on the workers uh, involved. The impact uh, that we're talking about here, though, is is is, is rather different. Just to, to clarify that, what we're we're looking at here is a potential problem for particular bits of the manufacturing sector because they're so dependent, interdependent on importing and exporting parts um, uh, across uh, across borders. And if that becomes more difficult, the UK-based plants may become less competitive and close down. Um, not because there's more trade, but because there's less trade because such a large part of trade happens within or between industries rather than industry to consumer. Yes, exactly. So, so these industries tend to export a lot of their output uh, uh, to the EU. That makes sense. It's a large market right next door. So any, any difficulties they have in exporting there are going to uh, affect the opportunities for those industries. But as you say, it's equally too important to remember that uh, trade isn't just about, you know, gaining export opportunities for your country. That's not the only purpose of trade agreements. That's not the reason uh, economists tend to be in favor of free trade and open trade agreements. It's the benefits from access to uh, imports uh, that make uh, production in your country more efficient and have gains for consumers. That's where we see the gains from trade as as arising. So the um, as you said, these the, these industries tend to be um, somewhat concentrated in particular regions. Can can you tell us anything about the sorts of um, workers, the sorts of households who are likely to be affected if there is a negative consequence for these manufacturing industries, whether it be chemicals or textiles uh, or what have you? Yeah, so when you when you when you look at those industries, as I said, they employ a minority of workers, less than ten percent of the British workforce work in in manufacturing industries. Um, but it tends to employ particular types of people. So it tends to employ people who are disproportionately male, for example. It tends to employ people who are disproportionately likely uh, not to have university education, not to have formal qualifications. Um, and uh, for uh, those sorts of workers, it tends to pay those workers 
relatively well compared to to uh, other industries. So manufacturing is quite good, is providing these sorts of opportunities for workers with fewer formal skills um, uh, and in these particular places. Uh, so, and, and what do we know about, therefore, the, um, you know, the possible impacts on, on household incomes and, uh, and broader welfare? So if you look at... Uh, where the workers who are employed in manufacturing industries tend to be located in the earnings distribution, they tend to be located in the upper middle. Um, so they're not at the top end. Then they're not, um, you know, poorly paid either. They tend to be in the sort of upper middle of the earnings distribution. Um, one of the interesting things we found in our research, though, is where the impacts of Brexit. Are going to fall across the earnings distribution depends a bit on what you assume about how mobile workers are across industries. Um, so if you just look at uh, the um, impacts on workers according to which industry they're in, assuming they can't move out of those industries to find other old, uh, employment opportunities, you do see some workers who are hit at the top end. So for example, managers in, in, in a chemical plant. Um, uh, the key question, though, is uh, would those workers be more able to find alternative employment opportunities uh, elsewhere than workers who have fewer formal qualifications and who don't, where you don't see other industries in their area that are less exposed to Brexit employing workers from that particular occupation? So that's a key sort of sort of source of uncertainty. And I guess one of the risks here is that um, you know, those who, are, who may be most exposed are the sort of skilled and semi-skilled uh, workers in manufacturing industry who might be in you know, fairly well-paid employment at the moment, not at the top, but reasonably well-paid. They lose those chemical factories or textile autom- automobile factories or what have you, and then the only jobs that are available to them are significantly lower paid, as, um, as, as perhaps we've experienced over the last 20 or 30 years when those kinds of industries have contracted. Yes, that's right. And when you when you look at uh, uh, the impacts on different sorts of workers of, of past trade shocks, uh, these workers stand out as, as ones for which the impacts are quite persistent, particularly persistent, and uh, they seem to be uh, less uh, um, willing or able to move uh, into different areas, relocate to areas where their skills might be in more demand than, than other workers. What about the um, argument that, that, that some make, which is that we've, we've got, a, and certainly in manufacturing goods, we've got a very big trade deficit with the European Union. So we're importing a lot more from them than we're exporting. If we have additional um, trade barriers, doesn't that provide an opportunity for British industry to, to grow off the back of those barriers and therefore actually be rather good for the uh, employment practice? Uh, employment uh, possibilities for the sorts of people that we're talking about is is this is this possibly a new dawn uh, for manufacturing in the UK? Um, so it's it's true that um, you get uh, some gains um, for certain industries as a result of what we call import substitution. Uh, so demand for goods from domestic industries goes up as it becomes more costly to import things from your um, um, competitors. And it's important to remember that those, those, those potential gains are actually built into uh, uh, models, trade models that look at the impacts of, of Brexit. Um, 
the reason those sorts of models tend to predict uh, negative overall impacts um, is partly because for many industries, um, the uh, impact of reduced access to the EU uh, export market is going to be significant as well as the increased costs of, of their imports. Those are going to both have, have negative consequences for those industries. Um, but also because uh, when we think about uh, the gains for trade from uh, the economy overall, um, uh, we're thinking about the gains that arise because UK workers are able to specialise in the things that they are good at. Uh, and we're able to import uh, things from other countries that specialize in the things that they are good at. Uh, and when you start putting up barriers to trade and make imports more costly, it forces uh, the UK to try to do more with less, to try and make things for itself so that it can more efficiently get from, from elsewhere. And that's one of the reasons why you get these output declines when trade barriers go up. So that's all. I mean, that's the the sort of fundamental argument for free trade, which is that the more if you have more free trade, it allows uh, those countries that are uh, good at producing things and do it cheaply to export uh, to others, and, and vice versa. And we all get better off as a result of uh, gains from trade. And there's lots of evidence that with more free trade as a whole, uh, we get better off. Um, Peter, as we've, uh, as I said in my um, introduction, um, this whole uh, issue about Brexit, uh, which you know six months ago seemed like the most important thing in the world, at least to some of us working on uh, the economics of it, and which has raised enormous passions and concerns about uh, the impact on the economy in the future, has been overshadowed uh, by the whole. Uh, COVID crisis, not surprisingly, given that we seem to have lost um, something like a fifth or a quarter of our national income over the last two or three months, which not even the most avid um, anti-Brexiteers would ever suggest is a potential impact um, of Brexit. Uh, But Brexit is still going to happen and it's still going to be a big thing. Do do we know anything about how these two things might interact, though? In what way might um, what's been happening over the last few months make life more or less difficult um, as we actually come to moving to our new trading relationships? So there's a view that the impact of the COVID pandemic might make the transition in some ways easier to a a trading relationship with more trade barriers. Uh, And that's, you know, perhaps because there's less trade going on uh, that any disruption at the border is going to be uh, less obvious in a time of COVID than uh, it would normally. Um, the problem with that view is that if we're going to make any kind of transition to a new set of trading arrangements, and there's considerable uncertainty, there remains considerable uncertainty over what those new trading arrangements uh, are going to be and what firms need to do to prepare for them, um, it helps for firms to have a kind of buffer of of capital and savings uh, and also the organizational bandwidth um, to be able to cope with uh, those changes and that uncertainty. And what the COVID pandemic has done has been to greatly undermine those those buffers. So many more firms are reporting serious financial distress uh, than they were before the pandemic. Uh, many form, firms um, we've seen from, from various surveys have, have said they have not been doing 
preparations uh, for Brexit, perhaps in the way the government uh, would have hoped for them to do. And uh, uh, in some ways, that could make the transition or the the the, the, the costs of moving from one set of trading rules to another um, much more costly. Uh, another consideration is that uh, the COVID pandemic has the potential to lead to much broader changes in global trading patterns. Uh, so, for example, firms might look at their supply chains and wonder whether they should be as lean as they are uh, currently, um, or whether they should be supplying more domestically, or from, uh, or maybe um, some might be thinking we, we should be supplying, uh, getting us more supplies from foreign countries in case there's a local outbreak here. Uh, and all those decisions are being taken at a time when uh, the trading relationship with uh, UK firms is much more uncertain. So when all these supply chains are being rewired, as it were, British firms might find themselves cut out of supply relationships uh, that they might otherwise have been included in. Um, and that might have, have long-lasting effects. So in many ways, uh, COVID uh, makes the Brexit transition more costly than it would otherwise be, uh, not less. Uh, and that's, in a sense, because we're um, layering uncertainty upon uncertainty, uh, cost upon cost, uh, and, um, you, uh, and and we just, in a sense, don't know how new trading relations are going to shake out uh, just across the world, just as we're trying to put our own new trading relations in place. That's that's right. That's right. Um, so, any uh, any good news, Peter? Is there is there is there anything that we can um, can look forward to uh, from an economic point of view uh, as a result of um, you know, what might happen from January onwards? Well, I'd like to be able to give some uh, some good news. Uh, uh, I mean, in economic terms, it is just fundamentally difficult. I mean. Uh, you know, the majority of predictions for the impacts of Brexit on the overall economy are, are quite poor, and uh, the economic impacts of Brexit get uh, uh, larger and worse the more distant uh, our new trading relationship um, uh, with the EU is likely to become. Um, so I wish I could give better news. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, that, 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 that answer doesn't particularly... Um surprise me as i'm sure listeners to this um podcast will know uh the economics uh profession is essentially unanimous in its view that uh brexit um because it will make trade with our biggest richest and nearest um trading uh destination uh, will economically at least make us worse off whatever the other positives may be that are associated with it uh, and of course there remains still um, more than four years now after the referendum, a huge amount of uncertainty as to what those trading relationships will uh, will eventually uh, will eventually look like. Um, the uh, additional uh, uncertainties uh, created by COVID and the uh, changes that that might have or might create to our economy, to the European economy, and to the world trade system uh, potentially make all of that uh, riskier. Still, so I'm afraid uh, we can't leave you with very much in the way of good news. Uh, if nevertheless you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well 
and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.